0: Have you ever been to the Rocky Mountains? What about Yosemite National Park? Or how about the Carlsbad Caverns? I regretfully have not. But listening to the music of Stephen Lyas is like listening to the soundtrack of those places. Stephen's music manages to effortlessly and flawlessly capture the beauty and grandeur of these parks and landscapes in the way that John Williams is able to perfectly score a film. I feel as though I'm transported to these places, and I can imagine myself kayaking down a river, or hiking along a mountain ridge, or even free climbing half dome. Except I'm afraid of heights, so the last one actually wouldn't happen. Nevertheless, lias's music captures the spirit of these places like no other. This is the first of what will hopefully pan out to be a long and fruitful series of interviews conducted with members of the Landscape Music Composers Network. In this interview, we talk a little bit about compositional inspiration, John Luther Adams's The Place Where You Go to Listen, and the future of our national parks. If you haven't listened to the teaser that I released earlier this week, I suggest you do because I go into Steven's bio in greater detail. I really hope you enjoyed because it was a lot of fun for me to talk to Stephen. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. I would like to know a little bit more about your background uh I guess in terms of your sort of your your compositional education mm-hmm. and how some of your different influences and teachers have shaped your compositional process in a way that either uh, lends itself to writing about landscapes or Maybe challenges the uh, the process of it.
1: That's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before, and um, the answer may be a little disappointing. My my compositional studies were entirely—I mean, they were perfectly effective, but they were entirely conventional. In that, you know, I wrote a string quartet and I wrote a serial piece and I wrote a this and a that and a vocal piece, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And at that phase in my compositional life, I was it had never dawned on me to focus on um, nature or natural subjects or any anything like that. That wasn't. In fact, not only had it not occurred to me to write music about that, it wasn't even a central part of my life at that time. I was uh, out of my studies and well into my teaching years before I sort of woke up to the idea that I, first I woke up to, hey, I really like doing outdoorsy things and I bought a kayak and I bought a backpack and I started like really stretching myself into that realm Separately from my composing and then years after that was when I sort of had an epiphany about combining those two things. Um, So the answer direct answer to your question about my studies is that my studies net that That aspect of my composing life now, which is so large had no intersection whatsoever with my academic studies, I will say that by accident, I wrote a few pieces. Um, when I was in my doctoral program, I wrote, uh, I wrote which was a piece about a cavern that is part of the Carlsbad Caverns network. Um, but that was because I saw a discovery channel documentary on it, not because I went spelunking. Um, and so, uh, so I did write a few pieces early on that had some leanings in that direction, but it, well, I didn't see it as, as anything that I might be doing as a, as a broad course, a broad current within my output.
0: One of the sort of roadblock, maybe not it's a roadblock that I've encountered, but the way in which people or composers, uh, I guess view nature than how they interpret it through music is is obviously so diverse right i haven't quite figured out the best way of like asking the questions to to really extract the best kind of information so perhaps maybe a better question would be as someone who i guess splits their time frequently between alaska and and texas what. Well, let me ask about, I guess, what's so special about Alaska to you? Because this is a good jumping-off point from my my thesis.
1: Yeah, well, um, have you been there? I have. So Alaska puts its teeth into you. Alaska is unlike anywhere else. There are beautiful mountains and glaciers and forests uh, in many places. Um, But Alaska has a sense of rawness, a sense of wildness, and a way of um, humbling you that that i'm not aware of having ever encountered anywhere else um its grandeur is on a different scale it, things are um it's just i don't i don't know how to say it very well other than to say there is an otherness to alaska uh, that is quite remarkable um and so that, that is reflective of why, I mean, I guess a, a number of my pieces are about Alaskan locations, and part of that is because of the otherness, the amazing impact Alaska has on me emotionally, artistically, but also it frankly there's a very practical side that i sort of walked into the right situation and made the right friends at the right time and the network of supporting agencies and people in high places that were that were at work in alaska made it possible for me to collaborate at an extremely high level with a whole bunch of national parks up there and uh national refuges and to um to sort of take on a more active, prominent role because my contacts were active and prominent uh, than I have in the lower 48. Although I've written lots of pieces about locations in the lower 48 as well. So part of it, I think, is inspirational and part of it is just practical. We walk through the doors that open for us. And Alaska opened its doors to me in sort of very pragmatic ways that made it a great place to work. So,
0: And what's it like living in Texas, by contrast?
1: Uh I am still somewhat surprised to find myself a permanent Texan. Um, I have lived here for 30 odd years now on and off and um, I am a child of the Northeast so I miss having seasons, I miss having mountains, but I love my job i love my house i love my wife i love my students i love my colleagues at my university so the fit here is extremely good for me um but you know other than that it's texas heat and uh that's a big reason why i like to in normal years i like to get out of texas in the summer when i can um and go to more northern climates um I'm not sure how to say what it's like living in Texas. Texas has its own grandeur and I've written pieces about Big Bend National Park. Um I I find it I find the natural uh world here equally fascinating, but I just haven't uh, sort of plugged myself into it in the way that I have to some other locations.
0: You you mentioned a couple times some of the other uh landmarks and and national parks in the lower 48 that you've written pieces about, mm-hmm. and correct me if I'm wrong. From what I've gathered on your website, this is part of a whole sort of ongoing project to write pieces about all of these um, different parks. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain a little bit more about: is this, I guess, one singular project with all different, you know, components for each each place, mm-hmm. or? are they you know conveniently separate commissioning projects?
1: More the second than the first. Um, It again there are both inspirational reasons for it and very practical reasons for it so I'll give you both sides of that coin. Um, Once I started down this path in about 2010 was when I started down the path and it all began actually because of a failed a failed guggenheim application i applied for a guggenheim fellowship and thought up an idea that i had never thought up before for that project which was to sort of be a, a composer of national parks and um that was not funded but once i had the idea then i couldn't stop doing it um, and so i immediately began applying to residencies at national parks that have artist in residence programs so the first handful of pieces came about either because I was commissioned by a performer to write something. And I said, can it be about a national park? And they said, sure, I don't care. Um, That happened a fair amount. And in those cases, I just wrote pieces about places that inspired me, like uh, the, my trombone sonata about Big Bend. um, Couple other pieces like that. And then, um, and then I was accepted to be the artist in residence at a increasingly important list of sort of the crown jewel parks. I first got to do Rocky Mountain National Park, and then got to do um, some parks in Alaska, and then Glacier. And so I had, um, I was. Some of the pieces were written as a as a collaboration with the artist in residence program, which for which you have to submit a proposal and say, I'm going to make this kind of thing. Um, and it's going to have this kind of life and et cetera, et cetera. So the, like the orchestral piece I wrote about um, Glacier National Park was was what I proposed to write for them. The same is true of Denali when I first went there. Um, I had a relationship with the Chamber Orchestra Kremlin. And I said, hey, I think I can get a top, you know, world-class string orchestra to play, to premiere the piece if I write a piece for you. So those sorts of things dovetailed together. Um, So it was a combination of me writing pieces about places that inspired me and then also applying to residency programs and seeing how those things aligned and just sort of fitting them in as they came along. I will say it very quickly became, as I said earlier, sort of a main current of my composing because I think I stumbled into the idea at exactly the right time which was about six or seven years prior to the National Park Centennial and so uh, in 2010 through 2015 I was churning out pieces about National Parks with the expectation that, that turned out to be well founded that probably a whole lot of arts organizations were going to want to program National Park related music in the Centennial, of the National Park Service. And that turned out to be true, um, professional orchestras and chamber ensembles and I mean, everybody was doing stuff, uh, interested in doing a concert dedicated to the national parks. And so I got a ton of performances uh, leading up to and during 2016 and 2017 sort of culminating with my my piece about Rocky Mountain, my second piece about Rocky Mountain National Park being played at the Kennedy Center by the Boulder Philharmonic uh was sort of the crown jewel of that whole trajectory and then as i expected following the centennial the national park service interest in those pieces has waned and i am still very much interested in doing residencies at national parks and writing more pieces about national parks but it's understandable that the public interest in that was really a trajectory toward 2016. so um then also concurrently with 2016 passing, my elderly parents started being in less good health than COVID-19 hit. And so um, my ability to go do residencies has been greatly diminished in the last three years. So for that reason, I haven't gone and done any any recent residencies and I haven't written any, I have written recent pieces, but none of them were about national parks. And so I'm not expecting that that part of my output is done Uh, I'm expecting that you know at a certain point when I'm able to travel more freely again and my schedule's more flexible I'll start signing up for more artists in residence programs and that will re you know kick kick that back into gear for me that's kind of the the way it's gone there have been lots of performers that came to me and said I'd like you to write a piece and I pitch a park idea to them that happened when I wrote Mount Rainier Search and Rescue that happened with with uh, Range of Light, which is my Saxophone Sonata, probably one of my best pieces I've ever written. That performer came to me and I said, "Can it be about a, a national park?" And he said, "Sure, in fact, let's do Yosemite and let's incorporate Ansel Adams into the equation and so um, so it's been a collaborative and relatively haphazard process you know just as people came along and we saw what the interest was in, in each project
0: i want to circle back to some of the more recent stuff and and how your process has changed if it has at all a little bit but before i do that i'm curious to know because you've traveled to all these different places and there's there's you know unique majesty and grandeur to each one of these places i'm I'm really curious to know what what is sort of going through your mind in terms of taking in these spaces and then thinking about putting the first sort of notes, or yep. I guess, you know, pen to paper. Um, because you've written pieces for, you know, these large orchestras that seem to lend themselves quite well to to uh, evoking glaciers and, and mountains and everything, but you also have these these chamber pieces that that detail some of the more intimate aspects of nature sure Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that
1: yes I'd be happy to and in fact when I go one of the things that happens when you do an artist in residence program is that they require you generally to make public do a public program or two and this is exactly what I focus on because this is the sort of voodoo of yeah everybody kind of understands music is notes on staff paper and people play it and make sound okay that's cool and everybody understands what it's like to go on a hike in the mountains but that miracle of a thing that happens to cause one to proceed to the other is what what everybody's sort of fascinated by me too so i talk a lot about this uh, first a couple stop me when i get boring uh, a couple big picture things um My approach to composing about nature is somewhat different than some of the other people you're going to talk to. It's certainly different than John Luther Adams. Um, And that I, I'm not advocating for my approach. I I think that all of us approach these compositions in a very personal way. Um, My trajectory into writing about nature and wilderness is quite uh, experiential and quite mundane when I say it this way. It's, we all, those of us that write music about stuff, and not everyone writes music about stuff, a lot of music is abstract, but those of us that write music about stuff tend to write music about stuff that inspires us. And so, therefore, you make this mental equation that says, well, the more inspired something makes me, perhaps the more potent the art I will create will be. I'm not saying that's a true statement, but it makes sense. It has a logic to it. And so, for me, the whole reason that I started writing about nature was because of how inspiring I found it. And the thing that I am most interested in communicating through my music is... The wonder, the joy, the fear, the puzzlement, the smallness, the bigness, the things that I feel when I experience nature, the, the feeling of being inspired by the by the wildlife or the geology or the scenery or the weather or the whatever it is, um, I look at how I am feeling in those places and I try to make that music. Um, That's not exclusively true to every one of my pieces. But broadly speaking, I am trying to capture my experience, both emotionally and physically, and then put that into a musical expression. That's quite different than composers, for example, who are trying to capture literal elements of the audio soundscape. And and imitate or manipulate that in their composition, which is super cool. I do that once in a long while, but at, that's not where, generally where I'm at. It's also quite different from people who are using their compositions as a means of um, influencing public thinking about nature and wildlife which is also very cool and music has been a tool to for society to look at itself in the mirror and evaluate whether it's doing stupid or smart stuff since the beginning right that's a really powerful facet of music and i know lots of composers who i admire who are doing things like that their music is is philosophical or or um seeks to communicate something to an audience that would make them then be philosophical about natural resources or and i i love that people are doing that it's just not what i'm doing my music is very much i was in this place and i felt this way and here's what maybe it sounds to feel that way does that make sense absolutely Um, so uh so how do i do that sometimes it is um well first of all my mantra with myself is when i am in the place i am not composing i i forbid myself to compose because that distracts me from the experience if if i am you know i, t- I tend to want to go into if i'm going into a national park i tend to want to go into a park and get dirty and scared you know or not maybe not always scared but at least out of my comfort zone like uncomfortable i, I you know um, I want to have an intense experience that is whatever the iconic intense experience of that place is, whatever it has to offer me, whether that's a, a river trip or a through hike or a, um, you know, climbing a glacier or whatever it is I want to do that, get myself out of my comfort zone. And while I'm doing it, I want to be purely in the experience because I know that the more potent that experience is, the more raw material I have to work with when I go to compose. I take lots and lots of pictures. I often will journal in, a, in, a, you know, in my tent at night, but I make sure that none of that leads me to make compositional choices because then that A, distracts me from the experience and B, it starts to make me try to shape my experience into music rather than shaping the music out of the experience. It starts to get backwards for me. So that's one of the rules that I have is go experience it, experience deeply and be in the moment. And then afterwards, I generally surround myself with all the artifacts of that experience, the photographs, the journal entries, the poems I wrote, the ideas I had, the self-revelation that it brought about, um, things, positive and negative feelings that I had along the way, anything like that i surround myself with all of that and then i start to say what will this become you know what what music expresses those things and so some of the pieces it's very like literal moments the gates of the arctic piece is is much once i surrounded myself with the experience afterwards it seemed obvious to me that what it was 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 moments separated by walking obviously it was a 10-day backpack right and if you say to somebody well what's a great famous piece that is moments of descriptive music separated by walking we all go oh pictures at an exhibition right and so the formal structure of my gates of the arctic piece is sort of basically pictures at an exhibition there's a whole lot of walking and then there's a bear moment and then there's a um rain in the tent moment and then there's a you know there's specific moments there's the flying in and the bush plane and landing in a lake moment Um, so that's what that became you know when i finished my residency at glacier national park uh i i had spent days alone on a floating cabin i had spent a whole afternoon talking to a tlingit native elder i had gone out on the whale research boat I mean, I had done all these amazing, inspiring things. And for some reason afterwards, I started writing sort of a poem about imagining like a spirit or if you think of it cinematically, like the camera it wakes up underwater. you know the an awareness, that's a better way of saying it. the the awareness awakes underwater and doesn't know where it is and it's dark and cold and then slowly drifts to, oh and realizes that there are dangerous things in the water with it and then it slowly drifts to the surface and it's in this fog and rain and it can't see very far but it realizes there are dangerous things in the fog and then the fog clears you know it's sort of this series of discoveries and then you know this awareness sort of flies up up the valley with the glacial wind and and sees the mountains and so it was a series of discoveries, but not as specifically sort of programmatic as hiking and seeing this and hiking and seeing that. Each thing becomes its own piece, but but the, the commonality is that they're all sort of told from the first person. They're never I'm never I, I'm always sharing my experience with the listener rather than than any of the other things. And and you know, some like sometimes I'll have a mountain range in a piece of music. And I'm like, okay, it's gonna be angular. It's gonna be shaped like a mountain range. That's physical. Sometimes I'll imitate the sound of the thing in my music. Of course, we all do that. But but broadly speaking, that's my approach to it. And that's why I find it so difficult to write a piece of music about a place I've never been. Um, I think the only one of those that I, I have been there since, but the only one of the my, my big national park pieces that isn't about my own experience is um, Mount Rainier Search and Rescue. And I interviewed a surviving climber from that climbing accident that it's about. And so I had his first person account and all the news articles to go from. And then the the Range of Light, the Yosemite piece, we agreed that I would do it through the eyes of Ansel Adams' photographs. So that was slightly different in that we picked four photographs that captured places. And of course I had been to those places, but more importantly, we were doing it through someone else's eye. And so I created a narrative as if I were the one standing there looking at that scene. Anyway, uh, but that, that's, a, that's a sort of a broad explanation of, of how I do that. Now, I to sort of finish that out, you, you referred to my process. Um, And I and I have very little process, I think, because you can see each place reveals something to me and then I say, well, what will that become. Similarly, I don't assume that my compositional process will be the same each time. Um, And for that reason, once I decide what the piece may start to look like that will then dictate whether I begin composing in uh, in logic, where I'm just throwing sounds on the canvas and I don't want to have to worry about how to notate it or whether I start composing with pen and paper in a very sort of old unplugged way or whether I immediately start in a notation program. Um, I, I do all of those things and I don't expect that any one piece will necessarily be any one of those or something else entirely. Um, sometimes I write I write secret lyrics. Uh, my Timberline Sonata about Rocky Mountain National Park is a four-movement trumpet sonata with 100% lyrics from beginning to end that no one knows but me. So, anyway, does that answer your question? <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much. I love hearing about the 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 desire to want to be totally disconnected uh, while you're in the place. I went to Alaska for the first time during our spring break literally the week covid was sort of exploding and oh really and it was it was great to be out there i split my time between anchorage and and fairbanks Uh but i must admit at the time i was also checking my phone far more than i would have into the whole point was that i had just done my my master's recital i had just finished writing you know the first draft of my thesis i wanted this whole thing to be a sort of departure from From the world, more or less, and I kept Uh checking my phone to make sure that airports weren't going to shut down and the stuff that right understandable
1: under those circumstances. Yeah, and so did you? If you used Anchorage and Fairbanks as your sort of base of operations, did you? Were you going out and like visiting other? Like, did you go down to Kenai? Did you go over? you know, the Matanuska Glacier, were you just sort of in the cities, or what were, what were you doing up there?
0: Uh, Fairbanks was was pretty much in the sort of sprawl of it, uh, checking uh-huh. out the, the museums, and... Uh, so
1: I'm sure you went there, since you're writing about John Luther Adams, you went up there to see the place.
0: Exactly, and yeah. that was the sort of, the first destination, and then allowing myself to just sort of uh, go on little walking excursion. The B- the Airbnb that I stayed was sort of in the mountains, so I did a lot of walking around in that area. Um, but even then, I, I felt that, for me, the way I wanted to sort of document some of that experience was to have, like, a handheld recorder. Right. So I had that with me. Um, and then for Anchorage, Anchorage was a little more... Um, city-based it wasn't you know the uh, in hindsight it wasn't the full it certainly wasn't even close to the full sort of uh alaskan experience that that i would have hoped i had to sort of cut the trip short by like a day or two in order to to ensure that i wasn't going to you know be be stranded out there so sure it's definitely first on my list for when the world reopens
1: and did you um in your writing about John, did you get to interview him or talk to him at all?
0: No, not 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 directly. Um,
1: he still owns his studio up just in the hills north of Fairbanks. Um, he sold he and his wife sold the house, but he still owns that studio where he did all his composing. Um, and he, I mean, he has sort of an ultimate goal of of sort of letting it be its own sort of artist residency and letting other composers come up there and compose sort of like the you know like the Copeland house only this is a one room dry cabin um, uh, but to my knowledge he hasn't ever acted on that but it's still up there um, and you saw the place since I've seen it so he was going to upgrade all of the lighting in there two years ago so i have to assume that you probably saw a more Subtle and nuanced and immersive lighting environment than I have seen when I've been there, unless they canceled that upgrade. Uh,
0: not, not to my knowledge. My, my base of knowledge going into that was sort of just the the pictures and. Yep, and, and it was what you expected. Book. It was what I was expecting, Yeah, okay. I mean, it, it's it was it was more nuanced than I expected. Uh, I don't know if I would attribute that to. Any uh, uh, advancements in the in the technology yeah. behind? They it.
1: upgraded the audio about four years ago, and um, and it was a significant. As someone who's who for almost a decade has been in that room every year, I've I've got like points of reference. And so when I went in, I told him I was going in that year, and he was like, "Oh, you'll be one of the first to hear the new audio." I left before they got it up and running, so I was. I was in there. I spent a couple hours in there and then reported back to him about what I thought. And uh, it sounded terrific. It was a big upgrade from what it had been. Um, And um, he's, you know, his because since he left Alaska, his career has been sort of over the top. Um, He hasn't had much opportunity to come back there but we always send him a picture of our composers group when we go to the place and uh, He's usually if he's not, you know in the middle of something else He's usually very gracious about responding and our participants always find that really meaningful that they got a text message from John Luther Adams, you know as they were doing that. So
0: Do you include do you include a trip to the place as part of your composing in the wilderness?
1: Yeah, we do um, and I, and we haven't really talked about composing in the wilderness and I'm not, I, I know you don't need me to do a commercial for it on your, in your podcast, but, um, it's sort of, it's, uh, like how that came to be and what we do with it is very separate from my own experience up there, but it is one of the great joys of my life that I get to introduce other composers every year to the wilderness of Alaska. And yes, we, we take them for five days into the backcountry of Denali, um, where they have an immersive experience and hopefully get dirty and scared. And then we take them to another secluded location where they have a few days to compose chamber works. And then once their chamber works are delivered to the players and the players start rehearsing, we have some sort of downtime in Fairbanks. And we absolutely always take them to the place where you go to listen um, as part of that workshop. Um, we. Usually our workshop also falls concurrently with the um, the World Eskimo Olympics, which happens in Anchorage or in Fairbanks, too. And that's another super cool sort of once in a lifetime experience to go to that. Um, I'm not sure if it will happen. I mean, we're planning for 2021, but of course, everything's weird still. So we're not sure if we'll get to do it or not. But um, but yes, we always take them to the place. That's that's an important part of it. Plus, the Museum of the North is just a great museum to get a sense of, of of the interior of Alaska. It's history, it's wildlife, it's it's you know geology. It's it's just a really cool place.
0: Yeah, I found it. I found it incredibly fascinating. Between that and uh, the Anchorage Museum, I, I yeah. felt like I really learned a lot. Uh, oh yeah, I was out there.
1: Yeah. Well, you'll definitely have to go back. I don't know. Since you're writing on this topic, I have to assume that you also like doing wildernessy things. Yes.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah,
1: you'll definitely have to go back to Alaska and get your get your get yourself off the the main road into one of the wilderness locations. And if you decide to do that and want someone to give you some cool destinations, uh, you just contact me again and I will give you a whole list of here, you know, secret places to go that are super cool
0: thank you i will absolutely hit you up when that when that happens
1: yeah
0: um well i did want to hang around the composing in the wilderness um you i know i know you've talked a lot about it and i saw the um your panel discussion at the most recent New Music oh, Gathering, New Music Gathering. Yep. where you know you, you you talked a lot about that and the experiences that, that people have um, I was trying to think of a good question to, to jump off of that um, how, how long has it been going on for now?
1: Our first year was in 2012 and that happened concurrently because of some wonderful people who I just happened to be in the right time in the right place with. Um, That happened concurrently with my Denali piece getting premiered up there. And um, so 2012 was the first year we offered it. And it's been uh, every year since then, with the exception of of this year because of COVID, um, we've offered our Denali workshop, which is Although it's got undergone some changes, it's we've got a sort of magic secret sauce that works really, really well with our Denali setup. And then two two other years, we we offered a second workshop as well, a more extreme um, experience in the backcountry that um, was also life-alteringly wonderful and scary and thrilling and inspiring. Um, that we we. May do that again once the the virus passes. We'll see, you know, how we feel about the our main problem with that. As I mentioned, new, new music gathering is that we really need to find some permanent underwriting so that our workshop isn't just a rich kids thing or a rich person's thing. We have people of all ages, of course, but it's it's discouraging to me that. We have lots of applicants who are super interested and would make amazing, amazing participants, but for whom both the registration cost and the travel cost to get yourself to Fairbanks are prohibitive, understandably. So I would love to see us get like for, for the Denali trip. It would only take about twenty twenty one thousand dollars for us to just eliminate registration costs that would cover everyone's. Registration. They would still have to get themselves to Alaska, but that would m- be tremendously more inclusive in in how many people could participate if we could get underwriting of that amount. And that's a small amount to organizations who do philanthropic work. You know, so um, we were in the middle of of making pitches to underwriting organizations uh, right when COVID hit, and then, you know, like everything else, that all that got put on hold because arts granting agencies also sort of lost projects they were investing in, but also lost income from corporations and private entities that, you know, suddenly didn't have the income to do it. So we'll see what happens when we come out the other side. But that's that was more than you asked. You asked what year it started. It started in 2012.
0: No, I'm, I, I, I thank you for that answer because it it made me think I'm curious to know how you think, you know, when we get on the other side of, of this pandemic, whatever that may look like, I'm curious of what you think our, as like, maybe like a human species, what our relationship will be with the outdoors and nature do you think there's going to be like an influx in people wanting to go to these you know these national parks especially uh, knowing that in tandem some of them are sort of disappearing in a in a a way
1: well yes there i mean i think fundamentally our relationship with these natural places will continue to be fraught um there because the human species will not change and um we we have all gone discovered new levels of cabin fever over the last year, and so yes, I think that when we are all free to travel, we will there will be a huge explosion of loving our parks to death. Um, you know, the, I think the number of visitors will exceed the the resources and and probably have a degrading. Effect on some of these places that we love so much. Um, I think that we as a species have proven that our desire to preserve and our dire, desire to consume are both going to continue and they're always going to be in conflict. And where that needle falls will shift somewhat, you know, left or center, or right of center. I don't mean politically left. I just mean it'll, you know, it'll it'll shift in the middle somewhere as our need to consume and our need to preserve sort of fight with one another. But I don't think that we're gonna come out of this pandemic and have either side of that, those conflicting sources suddenly win the day. Um, I think there will continue to be a balancing of power between sort of opposing desires. And one can only hope that, that we are smart enough not to, you know, permanently deplete or ruin some of the things that we value the most.
0: And from a more, from a more per- personal standpoint, how has this pandemic uh, changed your outlook of, of what place means?
1: Um, well, I will say, Words that I have heard every other person in the arts community say over these past nine months, and that is that the the Low level depression that we're all suffering from and the lack of ability or the difficulty in creating art of any sort that we're all suffering from is largely a result of of this being caged where we all feel like we've been caged and that's it's for good reasons we are doing the right thing we're doing the generous thing by caring for each other by keeping distant by not getting together, but it the human soul screams out to love one another, which we can't do we can't hug people, you know, and to go places and discover things. That's, that's the nature of the artists soul, I think, and every artist that I've talked to, whether they be in music or painting or anything has expressed that same struggle during this year, it has been hard. And so um, So how does that manifest itself in my relationship with place as you asked, it certainly makes me miss it more. It will make me appreciate it more when I am able to go return to both familiar places and newly discovered places. My wife and I, um, like many people, decided that we couldn't take it anymore. And so we put our kayaks on top of the car and went to an extremely remote place where we didn't have to deal with anybody else. And we could do backcountry camping and cooking and spent three days um, out in West Texas on the water and it was uh, it was remarkable to to think about how much value there is in just being in a in a new surrounding a new setting outdoors seeing new wildlife seeing new anything you know so i think i think that my own feeling is one that everybody shares we just miss travel we miss people we miss the inspiration that the discovery process of new places gives us whether that be in you know whether that be discovering a new valley in the brooks range of alaska or whether that be discovering a new alleyway in you know serbia you know there like the discover the discovery process that leads us to travel and learn other cultures and meet other people, that discovery process feeds our artistic tendencies, and we've all had to unplug that discovery process for a year now, and um, it hurts.
0: It does indeed. Um, I I notice we're we're starting to wind down our time, mm-hmm. uh, and. I guess by way of wrapping up, I'm would love to know uh, to someone who has never experienced your music. Uh, maybe it's unfair to, to ask a question that that more or less asks what's your you know what's your favorite piece or what's your favorite favorite child. But I guess what are there is there a particular work or a series of works that sort of best represents uh, you as a as a composer as an artist.
1: Well, I'll return to range of light. I don't think I've ever written anything better than that piece. Um, The second movement is certainly the hardest thing I've ever written. And the third thing is probably the sad. The third movement is probably the saddest thing I've ever written. so i'm I feel like if someone was were, were to want to judge me as a composer, I would want them to look at my best work. I would say, "Go look at range of light. that's probably the best I'm capable of um, and I, I you know I've written lots of works that i I enjoy that I feel like, okay, that resonates really honestly, uh, but that one I think is my best musical composition. My song cycle um, songs of a sourdough is also very dear to me because of how prescient it was. Um, I was asked to write a song cycle by a colleague. And I he said I could pick the texts. And so I picked poems of Robert Service long before I had any idea that my life would take the direction that it has taken. And so the fact that I wrote songs about the discovery and exploration of the Yukon and its dangers and it's you know it's catharsis that you you have up there um, and had never been there and now when I now having been you know having floated the Yukon for a week with National Park Service friends and having repeatedly gone and sat on the banks of of the Yukon at at Coal Creek, at Slavin's Roadhouse. When I listened to the the last movement in particular of uh, Songs of a Sourdough, it still makes me cry. But it makes me cry that, that life had such a beautiful poetic arc to it that I wrote a piece about a place I hadn't been. And then I went and discovered that place and rediscovered that the piece I had written resonated true, you know? And that, that was sort of magical to me. Now, Robert Service's poems, go deep into my heart like i've sat on the yukon river and listened to the superintendent of yukon charlie rivers national park read robert service out loud you know so it's like that that song cycle also is very special to me for that reason um so those two spring to mind i have lots of lots of pieces that are little favorites for this reason or that one but probably if someone was going to just listen to two range of light and songs of a sourdough would be a good two to see who i am
0: that sounds that's so beautiful
1: what an incredible uh
0: experience
1: yeah yeah and and i will say that the relationships that alaska has given me too i mean you started out by asking about how you know what what my relationship with alaska is it's also the people that are there and that, guy, that superintendent, Greg Dudgeon, is just a lifelong best friend of mine now. He's superintendent of Gates of the Arctic and Yukon Charlie, and we were texting yesterday and cooking up shenanigans. And he's the one that trash-talked me into going to Nome and, and going out into Bering Land Bridge and writing a piece about that. He's... Um, Yeah, he's just become a really important force in my life, as as well as many other people in Alaska. I could run down a list of of twenty people, who have just become dear important parts of of sort of my interpersonal network. So, yeah, it's very cool.
0: Well, Stephen, thanks so much for your time. I really do appreciate it.
1: Oh, of course, love love to do it. Um, this will this podcast.
0: All right, there you go. That was my conversation with Stephen Lias. If you want more information, you can visit his website at stephen, with a P-H, Lias, L-I-A-S, dot com. And if you're a composer who doesn't hate the outdoors or is just looking to try something new and get out of their comfort zone, I would seriously consider participating in his Composing in the Wilderness seminar next year, provided that conditions are apt for that event to be facilitated. Next episode, I'll be chatting with Ryan Suleiman. Till then, keep your ears to the earth.